Hey, y'all, it's Mandy. Before we talk about this week's episode, I want to say shout out to the patrons. Y'all are the reason I'm still doing this. I could do it alone, but it's so much better to run with people who share your vision, share your values, and see the importance of the work you're doing. So if you're interested in all the premium content, hearing about the questions and answers, or even being a part of our live patron chats, check out my Patreon. It's under at Mandy Capehart, or you can search for Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart and find it that way. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 71, titled The Practice of Curiosity with Derek Myers. Loss of our faith practices and beliefs is a sorely misunderstood topic. While most of us wonder at any given moment how concrete our beliefs may be, we also experience some level of uncertainty in our faith as well, and we all know how much our faith is challenged when we are grieving. We often talk about how to move through the uncertainty of life while grieving, but we don't often address loss of faith directly and how curiosity can serve us well with every heavy experience. So I'm really excited for you to gain some insight about curiosity and faith from my guest today, Derek Myers. Derek is one half of the wildly popular Instagram page, at your favorite heretics, along with his wife, Rachel. His own approach to faith has shifted significantly over the last few years of life, leaning toward the fluid approach of curiosity over the rigidity of certainty. This conversation felt like catching up with an old friend, so I hope you'll enjoy Derek's perspectives as much as I did. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Restorative Grief Podcast. I am here today, it's Mandy, with my new friend, Derek Myers. Hi, Derek. How are you today? Hey, Mandy. Thanks for having me on. It's, I'm excited to be here. Yay. Me too. Well, we were just spending some time together, everybody getting to know each other. And it's very obvious to me that you are going to love Derek as much as I already do. So uh, if you do not know anything about him, here he is to explain who is Derek Myers. <laughs> wow. Let me just uh, unpack all of who I am in uh, a few sentences. <laughs> yep. Just three sentences, please. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like one of my struggles with any sort of social media bios. Like yeah. I don't have yeah. enough characters to really sum up who I am. And as the perfectionist that I can tend to be, I'm like, ah, there's not enough room. What do I say? So anyway, um, so right off the bat, you can tell I, I tend to overanalyze just about everything. <laughs> um, let's start with my Enneagram because we were talking about the Enneagram earlier. I'm a two wing three. Um, so shout out to all my Enneagram two friends out there. <laughs> um, I, so my wife and I back in uh, July of 2020 started a Instagram called your favorite heretics. Um, and uh, you know, we've been involved in the deconstruction space for those of you who are familiar with that. Um, you know, we, I grew up in evangelicalism, uh, pretty, you know, standard non-denominational Christianity. Um, and, uh, right after I became a dad, I started to rethink a lot of the uh, big, you know, questions when it comes to, um, what it's commonly understood to be, you know, the core tenets of Christianity. Um, and for me, it really centered around, uh, you know, the idea of hell. Um, but I'm sure we'll get to that later, but, but anyway, the, the whole thing that, that really, I feel like, um, is true to me at this point in time. Um, I love being a dad. I have two amazing boys, Rain and Rowan. Um, they mm. are six and two. 
and uh, they are the light of my life. I have a picture next to my, my computer here that um, my wife snapped the other day, and it brings me joy every time I look at it. Um, my wife and I have been married seven years. We live in Georgia. And uh, right now, I'm just trying to figure out a lot of, uh, you know, what life looks like on the other side of deconstructing faith and, and, and even grieving some of, uh, you know, those areas of certainty, uh, living in, in the black and white um, and really making peace with all parts of myself and learning to truly love myself and help others love themselves more fully. So I think that was a beautiful summary. I think you did Well, thank that. you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I tried. Yeah, well done. <laughs> I love so much of what you said, and I, I want to go in so many different directions. And first, I just want to say, I think the thing that's really interesting, too, for people who will be listening is that we don't talk about faith directly a whole mm -hmm. lot on this show. And so at the same time, I know that that undercurrent is always there because who we are, you know, whole individuals, heart, mind, body, and spirit, that's a part of our lives, whether we indulge it, put it on the shelf avoid it, whatever that looks like. And so I think that the more that we can really address even just today, a little bit of the way we can move and the way that you have moved through the uncertainty as you've questioned things about your faith is really beautiful. And so mm. I think it'll be super helpful. So I want to start with something that you said um, about moving away from black and white thinking. So when it comes to grief, we are kind of immediately aware, wow, everything is gray. There is no, I prayed for them and they were healed. There is no, I said the magic prayer and I no longer had fear of death. There is so much instability and uncertainty that we become very aware of when grief kind of enters the chat with our faith. So what is your experience with recognizing like the binaries aren't really serving me anymore? And how did you move through that? Yeah, I think it's an everyday sort of reality that I'm constantly challenging, I guess. There's a sense of ourselves that is really pulled toward wanting things to fit in nice, neat boxes, wanting us to have absolutes about our existence, about our, you know, about our experiences. And, you know, the problem with that, especially even when we experience something traumatic or, or like, like a, a painful um, loss or any, any form of grief, I think those absolutes that we've been handed began to be put to the test. And when you hold them under the microscope and really examine them more closely, you realize that they don't really work very well. Um, and I know for me, you know, um, I, it wasn't until about three or so years ago that I was officially diagnosed with OCD. And OCD, is, for those who may or may not be familiar with, um, <laughs> pop culture likes to to portray it as you know being super neat and uh, you know a clean freak. And like any st stereotype and stigma, there's a little bit of truth, but not really. And so, really, what OCD is. Um, you know, uh, understood to be like is the doubting disease, if you will, be, and 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 that's probably not even the best way of putting it, but it's an interesting way of framing it because there's a deep desire for certainty um, within all of us, but uh, those who have OCD, like myself, um, you know, have a particular time when any sort of uncertainty comes up. I know for me, particularly, there's different themes around OCD and 
Um, like for me, I have a lot of health anxiety. So being the fact that we've been in a pandemic the last few years has been really hard for me. Um, you know, my, my youngest son has dealt with health problems a lot over the last eight months and that presents a lot of anxiety. And I think that as humans, we just crave to know that we're okay, that, that our loved ones are okay, that we we're safe. Right. I think when we experience trauma, there's a part of us that is left with this aftermath of is life safe? Am I safe? And I think especially with worldview and, and, and matters of faith and spirituality, there's something alluring about worldviews that promise us certainty, that promise us that if you just believe these things, everything's going to work out. God is in control. If you just trust God, everything's going to work out according to your good. You know, all these things that I was told. And again, when you're faced with these, these really uh, catastrophic situations, whether it's a a loss of a relationship or, a, you know, loss to someone in death or, you know, someone who's going through chronic illness or whatever it may be, um, or, you know, going through that personally, like these things are, are really challenging to any sorts of framework that promise certainty. And I think the odd um, paradox about it all, and something that I even learned through exposure response prevention, which is the specific type of therapy that OCD, um, those who suffer with OCD go through. And actually, um, it does bring a lot of healing. Uh, but what I learned through that was that accepting the uncertainty is actually so key to my freedom. And I think that that plays into so much of life is that, you know, I can't know for sure. I can't know for sure what the afterlife is going to look like. I can't know for sure if what I believe about life and, and, and the divine and myself uh, is absolutely true. No matter how much I want it, you know, no matter how much I crave to have absolute certainty about things, but there is a way forward. And that is making peace with, uh, with mystery and, and ambiguity and the complexity of life and saying, you know, I know I'm not alone in, in having these questions and these fears and this, this gnawing sense of, gosh, I just wish that like things were simple, you know? <laughs> and uh, for those of us who have deconstructed, we, we could probably raise our hands and acknowledge that we wish we could just turn our brains back off and go back to when we didn't really have to challenge these thought, thoughts that we were handed. So, yeah. Oh, so beautiful. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find to be so true is that of my friends and family, the people I know that have been so dedicated, like you and I were just saying off air, we're both worship leaders for a very long time. I'm even mm -hmm. like using my old in-ear monitors as my new for my <laughs> podcasting because they're great. Yeah. Um, but it, we were invested to the nth degree. So asking questions was our natural inclination toward our faith in order to deepen it and to remain, to, to build connection and become more, you know, expansive internally. And that incongruous approach that we kept finding, whether it was co conversations about hell or questions mm -hmm. about heaven or questions about healing or yeah. all of those things, because they were mysterious, would not rest for me. And so as much as it would have been, you're right. Nice to say, well, I don't think that that's true. Um, but that's okay. I can live with not knowing that's how I survived a lot of my yeah. own, like moving through faith while I was grieving. And so 
that it's really interesting that you said to the doubting disease, because the second you said that it shifted my entire understanding, because that's exactly it. You're compulsive in areas because you're concerned about an unknown future. And mm-hmm. I think that's very, you could easily place exactly what I just said over. We practice our faith on Sundays and do these liturgies and make sure mm-hmm. we pray the right prayer because we are concerned about an uncertain future. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's very interesting too. I think that I used to treat prayer a lot like a compulsion. Like if I just yeah. declare these things, if I just pray in a certain way, then God's going to move in this way. And, uh, you know, I think it actually, you even saying that made me realize, oh gosh, you know what? Maybe it was, <laughs> maybe that was more of a compulsion than it was actually uh, a helpful spiritual practice. But it's just interesting, you know, something that I think now on the other side of deconstruction that I can appreciate is that, you know, we're all just figuring it out. None of us, not, no one, no matter how certain they think they are, has all the answers. And, and if they think they do, then they are very good at cognitive dissonance yeah. and, um, and, and just stuffing down those questions. Like I, I was really good at doing that too, but you know, it, no matter where anybody's at in that process, it, it's to, to give oneself permission to question. Um, I, I know at least for many people that I've met and talked to is the beginning of the deconstruction process, uh, grieving, even this loss of, of having that sense of everything's just simple. Everything just works out. If I believe certain ways, if I pray certain ways, if I do these right things, this is all going to work out. And so it, there's, there's a sense of anxiety, existential anxiety, because it's like, well, now everything that I believe about the world, about myself, about God, about how, how life works, like it, it just all out the window. Right. And it's kind of one of those terrifying things of like, um, you were stuck inside like a, a, uh, cardboard box with painted walls. And you were told that this is reality. And then you kick down the cardboard boxes and you realize, oh my gosh, like I'm, I'm in this spacious place. That's wonderful and free and abundant, but also terrifying because I have no idea where I am. And I'm in this new landscape, no idea. The roadmap that I was given, uh, actually was (laughs) drawn with a crayon and is fake or whatever. And now I've got to realize, huh, the compass is actually within me and I can, I can trust myself. You mean leaning on my own understanding isn't wrong. You mean all the desires of my heart aren't bad. You mean my heart isn't wicked and deceitful. You know, all these things that we were gaslit and told, um, you know, how, how scripture was weaponized and used to, to, to keep us from challenging harmful beliefs and, 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 uh, Anyway, I kind of went off on tangent, but that all goes back to this of that, you know, when we really begin to challenge and accept the uncertainty and make peace with it, there's, there is a strange, strange rest and a strange freedom that, okay, actually, I don't need to have all the answers. And gosh, there's a lot of other people who are in the same place. And that's what I'm really grateful for about the work that my wife and I have done through your favorite heretics. We've met so many beautiful people who have gone through these similar traumatic experiences of even facing long periods of time of spiritual abuse and trauma and religious trauma and um, all sorts of things and 
have been able to come together and to, to leave what was the promise of constant community, right? And come into a new space where you're meeting people and realizing, wow, like this isn't a phenomena that's exclusive to myself. I know when I first deconstructed, I was like, am I crazy? Is anybody else going through this? And when I realized that, no, there are so many other people going through it, mm-hmm. it was like this sigh of relief, like, ah, man, I, I actually, like, I, I, I might be able to get through this. <laughs> there, there might be hope. I think one of the things that for me was really scary, because to say that we don't all experience existential anxiety at some point would be false. I know I'm sure in everyone you've interacted with, and certainly people I interact with, every single one of them is expressing some level of that. And the idea that we all experience it has to be so clear because I think people think they really are alone in that and learning to trust themselves and learning not to denigrate what they believe or what they're asking questions about. It is a scary thing to do because we were used to this community that shared a lot of the same answers, or we trusted other people, even though they weren't supposed to be trusting themselves, which there's a little argument for you. Mm. Um, We trusted them to have the answers that we maybe didn't based on their age, based on what books they were reading, whatever it was. We had this like security in community. And so as we started to like expand beyond that, it's really terrifying to think, well, now I'm floating out here on my own and there is no monolith. There is no shared doctrine (laughs) of deconstruction. There's no, (laughs) you know, no dogma, no creeds. It is Mm -hmm. a, if I, I guess you could say if there was anything, it is the willingness to be curious and the willingness to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that that level of humility often gets missed in conversations around deconstruction because we are so busy trying to protect ourselves and draw boundaries and Mm -hmm. find some new sense of security within ourselves like you were describing Mm -hmm. and so yeah even finding common ground with people can be overwhelming without having those big long deep conversations as opposed to oh they're also a, a presbyterian church cool i can walk in there and feel like there's some shared understanding right that's not true in the in the grief world or the deconstruction worlds. And, uh, that alone is horrifying to a degree. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you made me think of something earlier when you were talking about just the, the difference of feel between communities. I think you have one space, um, particularly within a lot of evangelical churches where you gather around answers, right? Yeah. Deconstruction seems to be more gathering around Uh, questions right and so there's a difference of feel one you can feel like oh well I don't need to to challenge anything and like I just can turn my mind off and you know live in this land of spiritual privilege I don't I, I know that sounds weird but like in a sense it is because you don't have to really dig in and get your you know get dirt underneath your nails and really dive into the real problems of, of life. Um, but on the flip side, gathering in a community around common questions allows us to remain open and fluid and flexible and curious. Like you said, um, one of my favorite shows, Ted Lasso, I mean, talk about a show that just goes into the human experience and grief 
and yeah. all those sorts of things. I mean, just so many beautiful themes. But I mean, that iconic line where Ted quotes, uh, I think it's Walt Whitman, but I think it's wrongly attributed to Walt Whitman. I did some digging. But, uh, you know, where he says, be curious, not judgmental. I just love that. And that stuck with me. Um, I really think that the more we can stay curious about what other people believe and how other people see the world and other people's experiences, whether it's with faith or sexuality or with pain or with, you know, what they're hopeful about. I mean, all these things enrich us and that's what it means to be human. It's not to be rigid and closed off and judgmental. It's to be curious and inviting and, and, and open to, to loving and knowing and uh, extending the invitation to, to, to be in community with people even different than yourself. Um, because if, if all you do is gather around people who just think like you, you're in a think tank and, you know, in a bubble, and that's kind of what leads to this, um, exclusivity and, you know, even a hierarchical way of viewing things, whether it's a hierarchy and in, in way one views like Christianity is like su supreme and the only truth, um, which is wrong in my opinion. Um, and so all that to be said, it's, it's just, there's so much freedom and peace when you can look at other people instead of seeing them as the enemy that needs to be refuted. Um, like, you know, is often taught with like apologetics. I need to take down their arguments and prove to them my, my beliefs are right and they're wrong. And I'm sure all of us have been exposed to various just gross Facebook threads and all sorts of things that have just are like dumpster fires um, of people just going at it. You know, I've even participated in, it, of course. But my my point is, is that in, in, instead of looking at people as the enemy to be converted and to you know force them to think like us, you know, it's so much more freeing to be like, how can I learn? How can I be enriched by what other people have to say? And to me, that's so much more exciting and beautiful. Um, you know, to I, I hope to have more friends of other faiths. Um, I know I've been really intrigued by a lot of Buddhist thought and Eastern uh, mysticism and some other things. Um, I just, I think life is so much more beautiful when we don't close ourselves off to understanding. Um, if we really believe everybody's made in the image of God, then that means everybody has something to reflect the truth of the, of the divine. Yep. And to me, that's, instead of denying someone's divine image bearing nature, I'd rather sit before them and try to, to soak in what they have to share. I love that. My, I told you off air that my background's in journalism and anthropology, and I wanted so desperately to just travel and get to learn about the way other people were living because it made so much more sense to me than to believe that I was living the best version of life. Like that my experience was the pinnacle uh, because I could look around and say, well, even if I was just looking at wealth disparity, it appears that more wealth equals better. So I can tell you right now, I am not the pinnacle of life, right? If you want to make it so simple. And so <laughs> it's, it's amazing how we still do that though. We simplify humanities down into categories as opposed to allowing that beauty to develop, but I mean, that's ethnocentricity at its best is mm. <laughs> my point yeah. of view is the king. Um, yeah. One of the things you said in there, that was something I want to hit on was I actually loved your idea of spiritual privilege because you're absolutely right in the grief community. That's 
something that comes up too. We have this easy bent towards skepticism of, well, that must be nice that you don't have to experience grief or loss, or, oh, it must be nice that you've never had to address trauma in your story. But I think when you add that layer of a faith practice over any type of grief, the ability to be safe in a community and actually ask big questions is almost exponentially more terrifying because of certain beliefs that at least in evangelical Christianity, we've been handed. And that one, I wanted to get your take on it because I know that so many people have questions when they're grieving and specifically realizing that their faith is becoming a secondary loss is the concept of hell. Mm. And so I'll give you a little bit of my story. My mom, um, just for context, at this point in life, I when this happened, when she died, I didn't believe in hell. I still don't. And it had been a very long time before I, I don't know if I ever did. That's another question. Um, but she died in 2016. And the last time I saw her, she was very sick. She was very contagious. And I chose to follow doctor's orders and not touch her. So I did not go through the, you know, Pentecostal part of my life that said, lay hands on her and pray in tongues. Mm. And I left and I, got a call a few weeks later that she had died or I was on the way and I missed saying goodbye. And for years, probably beat myself up thinking like, if only I had laid hands, if only I had prayed in tongues, if only Mm. I had done more, would that have meant something differently? And there were even people who had the audacity as I confess, such a huge, vulnerable, scary thing that would say, yeah, I mean, was your mom a believer (sighs) suggesting I could have offered her salvation in those last moments, suggesting I am the reason she might not be in heaven, suggesting a whole Mm. litany of things, which, you know, you're a two. So you're the, the positive side of my number eight on the Enneagram. (laughs) So you can imagine how well those conversations went down, but the question being then, how did you, or how would you bring curiosity to that conversation for someone who's having similar yeah. Moments of wrestling. Absolutely. I think knowledge is really powerful. Um, and I think for me, when I began to explore um, at least the sacred text I grew up with, which is the Bible, um, you know, for others, it could be other texts, but, you know, just speaking from my experience, I know when I became a dad, um, I began to look at my son and and think, no matter what he does, I could never imagine causing him harm. And so how can I believe that God is love yet in the same breath, think that he would ever eternally torture anybody for any reason. And yes, there's people who commit unthinkable injustices. And those are things to be, to rage about and to get angry about. And they're very mentally unwell and need some form of rehabilitative restorative justice is what I ascribe to. Um, but my, my, my point is, I think for me, it was this question of either I'm more loving than God or my idea of what a loving God looks like uh, needs to change. And, and that included the afterlife, right? Because it was all around this idea of hell and, and um, heaven obviously included in that. I mean, for, for starters, 
heaven's rarely, rarely, if even at all talked about. People like to, to say things about Revelation, which is a book that I wish was never included in the canon. In <laughs> fact, if you ask a lot of early church fathers, they, they were even contested about it. It was one of the last books added to the canon. And for good reason, obviously, because of all the harm that it's caused and all the, the ways it's been, you know, co-opted by Christian nationalists today and different things. Um, but my point is, is that uh, circling back to your question, I think those, those pain points, those checks in our heart that say, this isn't right, something about this isn't right, is the fuel that sends us down a journey of learning and unlearning. So for me, it's like, I, I, I believe it's perfectly okay for anyone to want to believe that there is healing and there is a positive afterlife experience, or, you know, maybe for some, they find peace in believing it's not an afterlife experience. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by people who have had near-death experiences and have come back talking about how it's this bliss of love and acceptance, and they didn't even want to come back because it was so euphoric and, you know, across the board. And then you'll have those really wacky people who claim to have these negative afterlife experiences that, you know, I won't give much attention to because of various reasons. But largely, if you look at the data, you know, there's, it seems to be an overwhelming amount of people that share that as something beautiful and something so loving and, and positive. And so some of those things I think are a gift to, to, to treasure and to, to savor. And, you know, no matter what one comes away from, I think that the universal underlying ethic, I think that connects everyone is love. And so to me, if love is a universal constant, what does love look like possibly after this life? Something that's wonderful for everyone and is, is personal to everyone. And uh, anyway, so for me, again, going back to that whole idea of hell, I mean, to just get a little bit nerdy for a second, just to help maybe some people uh, feel a little bit more free if this is something that they're wrestling with. You know, there's four words the Bible talks about with hell. There uh, is a Hebrew word, uh, Sheol. There's Hades, which is a Greek word, uh, Tartarus, and Gehenna. Um, so one Hebrew word and three Greek words. Sheol is mentioned a lot in the, the Hebrew Bible, and uh, it, it largely means the grave. So where everybody goes when they die, right? Um, in fact, by and large, uh, you know, uh, the Jewish religion isn't very concerned with afterlife experience. They're more concerned with here and now reality. Um, and um, so I think that that's also really fascinating to point out. Um, but, but beyond that, um, the, the word haze is similar to Sheol. It's, you know, as many could probably figure out from any education growing up, it's got that Greek mythological tie. It's the underworld, the, the realm of the dead. Um, you have Tartarus, which again is borrowed from Greek mythology, used once in Second Peter, that talks about um, this place where these beasts are chained up and stuff. So it's an interesting one. Um, and then the one that's most commonly used in the New Testament by Jesus is this word Gehenna, and it's actually a Greek translation of the the this actual place called the Valley of Hinnom, which is outside of Jerusalem, 
That was a place rumored to be where the fires never went out, where the worm never died. Um, it was a place where people unfortunately sacrificed children to um, deities like Molech, who was a common deity in the day. And um, it was often a place where dead bodies were thrown. It was like a rubbish site, um, many people believe. And so it's allegorically used to talk about judgment and Jesus being carrying this, this uh, persona. Jesus uh, was speaking about Gehenna, and he was using it as many of the Hebrew Bible prophets were using it to talk about a place of judgment. And like Jesus often did throughout his teaching, as laid out in the, the Gospels, um, he's using it to talk about the importance of the here and now. And the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about isn't a distant reality. It's an internal reality. It's a here on this earth reality, and it's something to emphasize the importance of caring and loving for people and alleviating suffering in the here and now. Um, that's why I think Jesus spent so much time feeding the, those who were hungry, caring for the sick, um, you know, befriending people who were outcasts and unwanted. And it was a picture of that this life can be like heaven or hell. And that this life, depending on people's situations, can feel very much either blissful or very much like the fires are raging and suffering. And so I think that what alleviated a lot of my, my, my existential anxiety was, again, understanding the historical context, understanding what these words meant, and understanding that just because the English translations say this one word and people over the years were really bad at handling uh, you know, what, what the Bible said in its original languages um, does not mean that there is a uniform, unilateral understanding of this. Um, and so I think it reconciles a lot with Jesus's ministry to see that um, we can help alleviate people's heaven and or people's hell and, and, and really bring, quote unquote, the kingdom of God into people's lives by loving those who need love. And that doesn't, that's not, uh, you know, copyright um, Christianity, TM or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just like, like I was saying earlier, love is universal. And because again, I believe, uh, you know, that God is love, that anyone can experience what the divine is like, what, what heaven is like in this life by having an act of, of really wonderful love. And I think for all of us who've experienced hurt and grief and pain and loss and trauma, things that make us feel like we're not just suffering in hell alone in this life is when someone wraps their arm around us and says, I'm with you and I love you. Not, not like I'm, I need to fix you. There's something wrong with you. You're to blame. It's that, that sense of love that, that really exterminates the intensity, even for a moment, of those fires of hell in this life. And so for me, that's how I understand it. And again, 
certainty at this point really isn't, you know, principle to me. What matters most is the lived experience that we have. And if we can help people to feel loved in the midst of their hell, then that to me is, is bringing a little bit of a glimpse of heaven, no matter where we are. Um, and so whether or not the after, whatever the afterlife may look like, I hope and have genuine hope, not just like a wishful thinking. I have, I have genuine hope um, that it is one of benevolence and goodness. Um, yeah. So anyway. I love that. And I love that you just said certainty is not a principle because I think the same thing can be true going back to like, there are no binaries in all of these things that we're learning, right? You're learning, you're unlearning, you're relearning. There are going to be times that you circle back to things that you thought, surely this can't be true, that maybe you become curious about. So, oh, actually, well, what if that was true? What does that change? And I think that that's one of the most beautiful things about doing intentional grief work, whether it's in the context of our faith or in just our traumas and our losses. What if, what changes in my life, if this thing that I'm afraid of is true, actually is true or has some truth to it? Or if I decide that certainty is not the principle I'm running on, you know, the principle track that I'm running down, well, that means that uncertainty is also not the principle track. Like, again, there are no black and whites here. So where can I look for glimmers of hope and curiosity in all of the gray space in between and to find some security in, in what that actually looks like. And it's that idea that just like you were saying with your entire story from where you've come from is as we continue to ask some kind questions of ourselves and recognize that we are trustworthy, that we are inherently insightful, made in the image of God, if that's what we believe, you know, like intelligent, compassionate people, we have to approach ourselves with that same level of gentleness that we're approaching everyone else, that we're willing to say, I'm going after you because you're hurting and I want to be here for you. We have those same values in, in, our, in our own lives and, and in our existence. And so it's so evident that you have spent a lot of time really in giving the grief that goes along with losing your idea of faith and certainty time to express itself and to breathe and to just exist without being condemned. And mm. so I'm curious, is there maybe a resource or an author or a musician or someone that as you have over the last couple of years, especially really learned how to hold space for yourself as you process and processing with uncertainty um, that has encouraged you, that would be something you'd like to share. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to choose one. Um, I think I want to say uh, something you said brought an idea to mind and a thought to mind that I think would be helpful. Uh, you know, and you mentioned something about kindness. I think if we're not kind with ourselves, which I really struggle with, I really, really struggle with, but through CPTSD, I've really began to understand why I have a hard time showing myself kindness, but why I think it's important, especially as we unravel our faith and grieve these parts of our lives that seemed so simple and so um, matter of fact, is that, you know, we really all need kindness and gentleness toward ourselves. Um, 
And again, speaking of psychology, if anyone's ever heard of internal family systems or IFS, it's so, so powerful. And I am just starting to scratch the surface, but I highly recommend as a resource for anybody to either find an IFS specialist um, who's a therapist. Um, but basically the gist of it is that we're all comprised of parts, whether there's the angry adolescent or there's the you know, the um, abandoned child, or there's just different parts of ourselves that make up who we are. But really, these parts of us come out in various trauma responses. And the whole idea is that the more we learn to have compassion and kindness and gentleness for these parts of ourselves, the more we're able to heal. And the true key to us healing throughout grief and throughout us processing and learning more about who we are is that that curiosity about who we are and why we do the things we do and to have that kindness for ourselves. So with any sort of big transition, whether it's a loss of any kind, especially a loss of faith, it's especially important to not beat ourselves up for when we believed a different way and to have compassion and kindness for ourselves at every stage of the process. Because at the end of the day, we're all just trying to do our best to figure it out. and. Um, I really think that that kindness is going to only invite us deeper into reintegration with ourselves. I love that you brought up internal family solutions or systems because it's it's one that I recommend people to all the time, and I know that it's terrifying. Um, and I love there are actually two books. I'll put these in the show notes, but there's one mm. that is specifically taking the IFS system and applying it to people who carry a Christian faith. I have. Oh one beef with the book because it feels like there's a little bit of like acceptance of the total depravity perspective Ooh, only yeah. in that there I, I I'm gonna butcher it because it's been a while since I've read it but I feel like they maybe are addressing like it's okay to see that and then say well let's ask Holy Spirit to actually invite some a better thought about ourselves but I okay. still, I'm still kind of like, well, do we have to? Yeah, yes, invite yeah. a better thought, and yes, befriend the managers. But also, uh, can we approach it differently? Anyway, all that to yeah. say, you're completely. It's right. funny because Dr. Uh, Richard Schwartz, who founded IFS, specifically like calls out <laughs> total yeah. depravity in his, uh, one of his books that I was listening to. So to hear that somebody took his work and tried to reinstitute it feels very anti-IFS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what's funny about it. It's a great book. I really okay. appreciated it, but it's funny because I'm like, uh, I, when I was listening to it and I've done it, read it a few times, I felt like I know what she's doing. I know that she's making a quote unquote secular approach relatable for the church, which I'm all a hundred percent for. But also, I don't believe that there's anything secular. So could we mm -hmm. just read the first book and not try to spiritualize it? But whatever you need, whatever pathway forward into more healing is the is necessary. Like if that's meaningful for you, I'm with you. Let's go. Right. This is <laughs> these conversations are not my journey. So we're not going to insert me. Well, with that said, the book recommendation uh, that I'm halfway through my ADHD I'm like, oh, I'm halfway through a book, new book. Uh, I'll do this book. I'll read it. And then I'm like, oh, I haven't finished that one. Yeah. But I do intend to finish this one. And it's called No Bad Parts. It's yes. one of uh, his, his uh, most popular books. So yeah. definitely recommend it. So 
I think that exactly that, that we have no bad parts allows us to really approach mm -hmm. ourselves with a hopeful perspective that mm -hmm. despite the trauma we are experiencing, despite the grief we are carrying, despite the enduring grieving process, we do not have something broken inside which to explain away why we are, you know, still grieving or still deconstructing or still believing things that we can't figure out. Um, and, and there's just so much permission in your story and in, in that system and, and in just in general, what in the space that you're creating online for people to be in process. And I think that that's really quite beautiful. Yeah. And to uh, borrow a lot of my process theology friends thoughts you know, we're all becoming, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. none of us are static. None of us are in one place We're we're constantly transforming. We're constantly changing. And that's why, you know, I feel very comfortable wearing a spiritually fluid uh, label. I mean, oftentimes it's hard for me to just wear quote unquote Christian because I have a lot of beef with that label. Um, I really, really am drawn to the person of Jesus um, and the cosmic Christ um, but the, the, there's so much different ideas that are attached to the label Christian. And for me, spiritually fluid, again, goes back to that curiosity piece of learning and embracing and, um, even inviting other thoughts into my worldview, um, instead of rejecting them because they don't quote unquote fit with mine. Um, so yeah, I, but again, we're, we're fluid. We're, we're constantly in motion. Um, and I think that just like we hear all the time about grief, not being this static linear process, it's so up and down, um, such is true with any process and, 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 um, path that we go down, you know? Yeah. yeah I've always loved the phrase process theology because it, it, it's the same thing in grief work. Like we are not healed. We are healing. Mm -hmm. We have not arrived. We are arriving Yeah, constantly in motion and everything that we do moves us closer to or further from the person we are becoming, not the person we're going to become because we don't like reach a certain level and then check out. That was one, not to change the subject completely, but I remember when <laughs> theologically someone said something like, oh, their journey was over. They became <laughs> fully realized and so God <laughs> borrowed them an angel now because he clearly, they needed more angels in heaven. Like the, the number of wrong things in that little belief system that yeah. genuine people are holding on to, oh, they died because their process was complete. But it's interesting too, how we will make up beliefs to try to satisfy this gnawing within us for certainty to go back to what we started with. I mean- and it's not that that's wrong. We all crave that, but there's good ways of approaching the uncertainty piece and longing for certainty. And there are not so helpful yeah. and, and actually harmful ways, including, oh, God just needed another angel or, oh, you know, God is testing you by taking something from your life, like Job or something like just gross thoughts that right. just are super harmful um, and teach us to fear our reality instead of move about it with, you know, a sense of peace. That's a beautiful place to end this conversation because otherwise we're going to talk about platitudes and spiritual bypassing for another hour. 
Well, that's and part two. That'll, yeah. that'll be part two. <laughs> there we go. We could do that. Derek, this has been such a treasure. And I hope that you know how much freedom you're bringing to people who are listening. I can like literally hear people nodding and feeling very free in a lot of the questions that they've carried, because while it's one thing to have deconstruction conversations online, and you know we've probably shared Twitter spaces where people are telling their story and where they're at, there is something super intimidating and really complicated about trying to even know where to begin to tell your own story and how to approach your story while you are actively grieving it is an another layer on top of that too. And so I just want to thank you for making space and, and sharing your own story, but also approaching it in such a way that it is invitational that we can like acknowledge and affirm all of the things that we're probably feeling and feeling lost within are completely reasonable on the back of all the things we've experienced and been taught to believe. And so thank you for making space for people to uh, unlearn and to remain hopefully uncertain. Mm, absolutely. Well, it's been a joy. And, um, you know, I, I guess I'll just finish by saying that, like, you know, everything belongs, you know, there's not, there's not a part of ourselves, a part of our experience that um, it's not welcome. And, you know, every question, every desire, every, every impulse that's, that's, you know, pulling at us, you know, it's, it, it's all welcome. And, um, you know, I hope people feel safe and encouraged to have a little bit more uh, of a motivation to love themselves more fully um, through this. So, so good. Everybody, thank you for listening. Go follow Derek at your favorite heretics. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle, sticking with the theme of heretic, Derek, at Derek the heretic. So That's perfect. At <laughs> Derek the heretic. I love it. All right. We'll talk to you soon, guys. Thank you for listening to episode 71 of Restorative Grief. The secondary loss of our faith in the wake of other grief or traumatic events is such a painful space to approach. I know I related so much with Derek when he mentioned shelving his questions that cause cognitive dissonance. The unraveling of our entire belief system is not done out of malice, but with the intention of finding congruence and clarity. And yeah, it is often very isolating and a scary prospect. But more than anything else, I hope that you heard the hope in Derek's story about building ourselves up around a gathering of curious people, those willing to be uncertain, unclear, or simply in process. Because if there's anything that's true about grief, it's that we are living out a very, very ongoing process, and there's no reason for us to do it alone. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, thank you, thank you, thank you for choosing to join me this week. For some, this is the only access of grief support there is, whether they live in a physical care desert where providers are far and few in between, or simply they lack access for other reasons of income or safety. Restorative grief and all the arms of this work create a safe place for grievers to fall apart. So you being here is proof that there is something meaningful for everyone. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Derek or myself, and I've included links to the books he mentioned as well. And you can learn more about my work, the Restorative Grief Project, and all the other things I'm up to as well. Take a moment to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes, leave a good review so others can find us. And one last thing. 
please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon.